Yeah, it's time dreadlocks. You have a fight. You have to stop running dreadlocks. You can't run no more. Oh, sorry, that was my mother's tongue. Uh, uh, it's time to actually enter the the cauldron. It's time. Really, Umar, you don't really ask great probing questions. I mean, there are some promoters. I feel like some promoters do interviews with you guys. They ask what's going to be said first. They have notes. They ask to see the interviews. They get the interviews cut. One promoter I know did an interview with, the other, with you the other day for 50 minutes, right? And then phoned up and asked you not to put the interview out. So, unfortunately for me, all I do is I do it raw. I never ask to know a question. I never ask for things to be taken out. I never ask to see it before it goes out. I never say, oh, don't put that interview out. But people don't really see that. I just feel that your interviews are more kind of like leading questions asking what people want to be asked. Like at no point are we saying to Tyson Fury or to Frank Warren, can we just confirm that the reason this whole deal, which your team started anyway, didn't take place, is because you weren't willing to fight Alexander Usyk. Hey and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where there's a young man in Belfast who's literally sat in his living room right now going, what on earth do I do? Um, there's a young man in Belfast who is wrestling with maybe the the biggest existential crisis any boxer has faced in recent years when it comes to boxing. Maybe Anthony Joshua comes close after Andy Ruiz, but if you look at, I don't even think it's that because... If we take Michael Conlon, never has someone so talented, never has someone so expected to dominate in the pros been found wanting. If we had to peg where Michael Conlon is as a professional ability-wise, he's British, but I think he'd struggle to hold a British title. I think he'd struggle against guys like Reese Bellotti. I think he'd struggle against guys like, based on Saturday's performances, I think he may struggle against guys like Yusuf Kamari and Jerome Stay Ready Campbell. But this is Michael Conlon. Michael Conlon coming out of the Olympics was the surest bet to be a world champion. They were already talking about matchups between him and Shakur Stevenson at 130. All this stuff was being talked about. You know, he came out the Olympics, teamed up with Adam Booth, um, had all the right people around him, nominally speaking. And so for, for Michael Collins to have had three defeats where he's been stopped, and not, not stopped, let me rephrase it, crushed, is how I would describe it. It's not good to see. Um, I watched it and I felt sorry for Michael Conlon because... I'm in the sport day in, day out. And I see kids walk through the door every day. And they think in their heads they can be a world champion. They think they can be an ABA champion. And I know that of every 100 kids that walk through the door, one. One may win an ABA title. I may have a good year, get five in one year. But averaging out, it will be one in every 100 kids that walks through your gym will be an ABA champion. Now imagine what the odds are of being a world champion. Conlon was different. Like, 
his whole life. Like he's from boxing blood. He was on that path. He was on that ladder to success. How has the whole Jamie Conlon, not Jamie Conlon, sorry, the whole Michael Conlon, we'll come on to him later. How has the whole Michael Conlon empire come apart so easily? How has the Irish system been exposed so cruelly? Um, Paddy Barnes, you know, you can list them. All these kids who, who, who can box for three three-minute rounds and look incredible. It's a system that has produced incredible boxers, however far back you want to go. But when it comes down to the rough and tumble of pro boxing, they're not at it. It can't be a poverty thing because I'm, I'm sure these kids don't come from the best areas. And it can't be something systemic because you, you, the Irish teach people to box well. I mean, I've talked about some of the Irish boxers I admire. I'm a fan of Kelly Harrington's people. No, I'm a fan of Amy Broadhurst's people. No, I'm a fan of Michaela Walsh's people. No, I can bore you with all the names. Even going back to the people like Dervla Duffy, I'm a fan of. Aoife O'Rourke, I'm a fan of. Fan of Thomas Carty. I was a fan of Joe Ward back in the day. There are loads of Irish boxers I've watched and gone, God, they're good. But it doesn't translate into the pros. When it comes down to heavy shots getting thrown in 8 or 10 ounce gloves, there's just a lack of toughness, a lack of ability to resist that. There's also the worrying issue of a, a lack of power. There are no devastating punches coming out of Ireland. So I don't know what it is structurally. And I know people say I'm criticising Ireland. I'm not. I'm looking at a system that does so well at one level. And then I was asking, why does the funnel go so wrong as you move up? You know, no idea. And people can say, oh, we're a small nation. But that can't be it. With the right system, small nations can punch well above their weight. If you look at what Fiji do in terms of rugby... Fiji is a far smaller nation than Ireland, and they punch incredibly hard for their weight. So I don't know what it is. Now I think it's a discussion that's ongoing, and I'll be interested to know what people think. But if you watched Saturday night, you had Mick Conlon versus Jordan Gill. And on paper, if you look at those two careers, they shouldn't be fighting each other. Conlon should have been fighting Lee Wood. Like, on two completely different trajectories. Jordan Gill was a Mick Conlon sparring partner. That's all you need to know. You know, and if we look at Jordan Gill, I'm sure Jordan's a nice kid, lovely kid. 11 years of pro, he grinds his way up. Like, what's he got, two defeats in 30 fights or something? And he's ground his way up, but he's never fought anyone of any note. Like, people say he fought Kiko Martinez. Kiko Martinez is a granddad. He retired not long after that fight, if I remember. So, it's not like Jordan Gill has all of these illustrious names like your kid Galahads and your Josh Warrington's on his resume. He doesn't. Like, he, he's a guy who's had a few lucky touches to get the, the belts he has. But he's plugged away and he's stuck at it. And, you know, his post-fight interview tells you the stuff he's been through. But I say all of that to say a very simple point. Jordan Gill was never meant to be on the same level as Michael Conlon. That was never scripted. I don't think Bob Arum signed Mick Conlon and said, 
I can't wait for Mick Conlon to fight Jordan Gill. And I say that just to illustrate this point. What are you thinking when you're Mick Conlon sat on your sofa today? What are you thinking? Like, Where did it go wrong? Because I watched him and I said, I don't think this guy is obsessed with being the best in the world. I think he's obsessed with being the best version of Mick Conlon in the world. And there's a big difference. And that difference is, what price are you really willing to pay? How uncomfortable are you really willing to be? I don't think that's a question you should be asking ahead of a Jordan Gill fight. That's a question you should have been asking before the Lee Wood fight. You know? There are many things you can lay at the door of Mayweather in terms of holding boxing back. But one of them was this idea that you just need a good defense. You need to just be slick and have good timing and you'll be okay. Because it hid the fact that Floyd Mayweather is an incredibly tough man. It hid the fact that Floyd Mayweather could hit hard enough to back people up. And what it's done is it's almost given license to people who are feather-fisted and quite delicate on the whiskers to believe that they can do what Floyd Mayweather did. And you can't because Floyd was seasoned, honed and proven against very, very tough fighters. That was his whole career. Maybe if Mick had been in with some tough opponents, maybe if Mick had spent six months sparring in Mexico, he would have realized maybe this this boxing thing isn't for me as a professional. But Jordan Gill went in, and we can talk about game plans and genius, but Jordan Gill went in and said, this is the guy that I've sparred numerous times in big gloves. I wonder what he can take when the gloves are smaller. And I wonder what he can take when I don't have to cut weight savagely. And what you saw was, you saw a guy just getting bullied. Mick Conlon was almost on, he was on the outside looking for a way in. Knocking on every window, every door. And Jordan Gill just wasn't letting him. And there were brief bursts, I think there was one in the third, maybe one in the fifth, where you saw Mick Conlon show his fighting spirit. And you can't question his fighting spirit. And he came back to impose himself. But that seemed to take so much out of him that he, almost in that ring, he was almost like, I can't do this. And it dawned on him that he might have to do that for another three, four, five years. And he was like, I ain't got this in me. And he's looking and going, Navarrete's better than him. Oscar Valdez is better than him. God, Burchelt's better than him. And what happens when Mauricio Lara moves up and Lopez moves What happens when these guys move up to the same weight? I'll go do this against them? And I think at that point, Mick was like, I ain't got it no more. And when the ref stopped it, if you notice, he kind of had that look about him like, I don't have it anymore. And it was sad to see because between Adam Booth and Pedro Diaz, you have, you have name brand coaches who should have seen something in you and brought it out of you. So it's either they didn't see it or you didn't want to receive it. I don't know what it is, but Mick Conlon sat on his sofa right now. Kids running around, wife at home probably. Um watching Eamon Holmes and going, what do I do? I'll never tell a man to retire. I'm not going to say stop boxing. If you love boxing, do it. But be realistic about what you can do in the sport. And hopefully he's having that conversation with those who care about him. But it's a real shame that Mick Conlon didn't hit the heights that people expected of him because there was so much potential for him to be spectacular. But I come back to this. If you're not a tough man or a tough woman, professional boxing is not for you. When I say tough, there's the mental side of it, 
but there's the physical side is you know having the thicker bones and the thicker tendons and you know being quite compact at the weight being dense at the weight all these things having a strong upper back so you can resist the shots better um all these things that people don't see because all they see is a six-pack and some veins on on the forearms and they go he's in shape but it's not that it's what's underneath the skin and you're born with that unfortunately We've seen many kids who look the part just break down when the reality of pro boxing hits them. The body just can't take those loads. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just means you've got to find another sport. So in terms of the rest of the card, and I know I'm about to to swim in, in, the, in a pool of sharks, right? Because I know the Irish sharks are going to jump down my neck. and They're on my biscuit right now. But in terms of the rest of the card, um, Crocker versus McKenna, just good meathead fight, right? Just guys who wanted to tough it out. Crocker wanted to dig. McKenna can seemingly take it. Um, good fight there. Um, enjoyed Agyaka versus Williamson. Surprised Williamson didn't have more finesse considering the, the amateur career he had. He, he was unbelievably crude. I don't want to say he made Agyaka look good. I think Agyaka boxed really well. Um, how the hell you get Keevan out of all those letters, man? That's... <laughs> I mean, that looks like the beginning of a countdown puzzle. Do you know what I mean? You know, you watch countdown. It's like, can I just get three vowels and seven consonants and just put it all together? You're like, Keevan. You're like, what? But fair play to the guy. Um, I think if you're Irish and you're looking at who's really going to cross over, it feels like he could have it. Um, I think if there's a push behind Thomas Carty, he might do some damage in probably about two or three years from now when the belts scatter and there's just more opportunity. Someone like a Thomas Carty as well is how I look at it from an Irish boxing perspective. But I thought Yaka did what he had to. Um, once once he had Williamson kind of, you know, lunging, he was able to pick him off, work him. Um, really enjoyed what Yaka did in the 10th round though. That final round, like that, you know, made a statement, told the crowd, look, there's no Frampton. There's probably going to be no Conlon after this. I'm your guy. And he sees that moment, uh, split decision. Don't know if it was that close for it to be a split decision. But happy for Kievan Agyako. Um, good luck to the kid. I thought, yeah, thought he boxed well. The only question I would have, and people would want me to be balanced in my opinion, can he go and take someone out when he has to? At that kind of British plus level, can he go after someone and say, I'm going to stop this guy in six rounds? We need to see that side of him, I think. Um, counter punching's cool, and it will get you a long way, but there'll come a point when you have to go after someone, you have to really impose yourself. Uh, Troy Williamson looked like a giant in there compared to Agyako. Looked huge. Uh, don't know if he did the weight right, because he seemed flat. Just couldn't get his bearings, couldn't get his distance. It wasn't the same Williamson that fought Ted Cheeseman, but... I don't know if there's a version of Williamson that would have beaten Agyaka that night. I thought he boxed really well. I thought, yeah, I thought the split decision was wrong, but that's just my view. So I thought that was good. Uh, McComb versus Maxwell. Oh, Sam Maxwell. Sorry, but I just want to be real. It's Sam Maxwell. Um, you're set up to look good. I don't know if that tells us anything, because I don't think Maxwell's hungry. So I don't think that's the threat coming in. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think... It's interesting that the, the stoppages came from the British kids. So I think uh, Cameron Vong and Lee 
it's Leo Levi, I never know what his name is, Buttigieg. Sorry, Ed. Um, so they got the stoppages, but they're meant to because they're in the building phase. Hard to judge those guys because they are literally still kids. So we've got to see them harden up physically to work out, is it going to be enough power? But they're both going to need power, I think. They're, they're both going to need power. Um, or they run that Dennis McCann risk of being really, really good and it just being hard work to take people out. And you don't want that. Because that's a long career. and You don't want to be doing too many hard rounds early in your career. So we'll see how it goes. But just to touch on the card in general, Hearn's not stupid, right? I don't imagine it's, exp it's as expensive to hire out Belfast as it is to hire out London, Leeds, Manchester, right? So it's already a relatively cheap card. You can probably charge your match prices. And then from that, you just go, right, we're paying less to get the venue. We're paying less in hotels. Cost-wise, I imagine doing a Belfast show per unit, not even in total, per unit is probably 50% the cost of doing one in London. Maybe 70% the cost of doing one in Manchester. So there's a nice little margin there. And you keep the zone happy because it's still content, but you're making a bigger spread on things like the crowd and so on and so forth. So Hearn's smart because where else was he going to go? You can't do one in Birmingham. There's no money for him in Birmingham, so he does one in Belfast. So I think that's really smart. found it interesting that it was a co-promotion with Conlon Promotions. Now, bear in mind, Jamie Conlon can't fly to America for reasons that I imagine you guys can figure out for yourselves. But that makes me wonder if, if you have a promoter of record who is unable to travel to the United States, have the board not said, why can't you go to the United States? Have the board not gone, maybe we don't want to be you know, walking down this road? And no one has said to Eddie, how are you working with someone who can't travel to America, whereas you can? I'm just saying these are questions. I'm not going to draw conclusions. But my, my point is... A lot of the public will believe that that was just a matchroom show. That was a co-promotional show with Jamie Conlon. And people need to be aware of that. Um, which is a standard matchroom model. I don't think a lot of these shows you see abroad are just sole matchroom shows. A lot of them are co-promotions because it means Hearn doesn't have to carry a big overhead. And Jamie can just bring people onto the shows who he knows sells tickets and you know they can work it that way. So fair play to them. Hearn just comes in. Um, fight week does his hern thing you know sprinkles a hern dust on a venue and hopes for the best but yeah just that was really really interesting that we had a a co-pro there which was weird just want to touch on a couple more things quickly um i was one of the, the subs who's watched the ryan garcia fight and it left me wondering how many emotional scars this guy has not just from the Javante Davis fight, which I think was a humbling experience, but just from the the rocks he's had to absorb in the last couple of years, you know, ever since he said, look, I'm taking a break from my mental health, I don't think the public have seen him the same way. And I don't even think he's boxed the same way. He's not the, he's not the guy we saw box Luke Campbell, which is sad. He, he was boxing this guy's Oscar Duarte and Duarte's not, great i'm not saying he's terrible but he's very limited if if he gets you in a corner he knows what to do outside of that he has no idea and you saw garcia 
just kind of circling the perimeter of the ring. And yes, he stopped him. I think he stopped him in the eighth. Yes, he stopped him in the eighth. You know, and you can't fault the fact that when Ryan catches you, he catches you. But there were just things there, body language-wise, where he didn't look like he he wanted it. There wasn't that hunger. He wasn't trying to make a real statement. And I'm looking at it going, what's Derek James done? Because he kept doing this annoying thing where he was trying to almost do like a shoulder roll, but over-rotating. And he'd end up almost like in a standing fetal position. And Duarte got pinged a few times for hitting around the back of the head, but he wasn't aiming for the back of the head. Now, I don't know why Garcia is doing that. I don't know if it's like over, over, overcompensating for, you know, like, oh my God, what, what if he connects? I don't know if it's that. I can't tell you what it is, but nothing in that fight gave me confidence that against the top guys, Ryan Garcia is a threat. Uh, and then all the antics we saw in fight week between him and his promoters kind of just reinforced the fact that there's something not right. And I know people say, ah, if you went to match him, it would be different. I don't think it would be. Sometimes there are demons you're wrestling in your own soul that only you can fix. Because I looked at that fight. He doesn't throw enough punches to, to sit at the top table. Doesn't throw enough punches. Doesn't throw enough power punches. I'm not sure he can stand there and dog it out with someone. And if he wants to win, he's going to have to dog it out against guys like Haney and Progre. So I haven't seen that in him. You know, Still keeps his chin miles in the air. And he relies on his reflexes, right? But all of that's going to slow down. And yet young, young men don't realize this, but old heads know. At some point, you're going to slow down and you better have you better have your defensive shape sorted by then because it's going to be a very short career if you don't. So if we go back a year and a half, Ryan Garcia was part of that golden quartet, wasn't he? Teo, Garcia, Haney. Davis I think you can drop Ryan out of that for now and put Shakur Stevenson in there even though he hasn't looked spectacular recently you put him in there and all of a sudden you've got four competitive guys Ryan's got to fight his way back in there and I don't think you do it with the performance he showed on Saturday comes back to something I say all the time at the top level all you really have are your basics if your basics aren't 10 out of 10 you're not going to be elite all the flashy stuff the slipping four or five times the shimmying, the running around the ring. You can do that at lower levels. But when you're fighting someone just as good as you, you've probably got a one-two, a jab, and a left hook. Tops. Uppercut if you're, if you're there, but that's all you really have. The rest of it is just how you package that together and how you make sure you make fewer mistakes than the other guy. That's pretty much it. Other unrelated bits we'll touch on. Just... I had a call yesterday evening from a trainer. We were just talking boxing. And you see this guy was moaning that there are so many new jacks who come into boxing. So many PTs who think they can coach. And I was trying to explain to him, the problem with boxing is boxing always shoots itself in the foot. What does every boxing coach do? Every boxing coach on Instagram has at least one video in their feed of them doing some stupid pad drill and they'll write some pithy comment about this is real boxing, this is what you, you know, everyone has that sort of nonsense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of the disease that has spread through boxing coaching. So when you go through all of this and you see all of these coaches um, and 
most most amateur clubs you see it right and they get there and they they do all these stupid videos explaining stuff none of it's actually valid by the way because most of it is your mileage may vary um i think box is a really really hard thing to to educate people on via youtube i think you have to kind of be there because then it makes more sense because a lot of that stuff is i call it it's, it's hidden if you if you're a rugby fan you'll understand what i mean like scrummaging you can explain scrummaging to people but if you've never been in the front row you don't know what it means when the pressure comes on you don't know what it means when you say i saw that hooker pop out the scrum like you can talk about that stuff but to understand it understanding is 90 percent of the value of it so a lot of these guys do this now what happens is if i'm a pt at anytime fitness or fitness first or doug's health and wellness doesn't matter i'm seeing these videos going oh that's what they do oh i can do that then i go and get my paperwork i'm a level one coach now i'm a level two coach i'm like okay i'm i'm a level two coach level three qualified in strength and conditioning and um, level seven in weightlifting and i do all this stuff right and i start training people and Boxing coaches see someone doing the exact same drills that they had on their profile and they moan and they go, yeah, that's not really how you do it. It's like, no, no, that's how you do it. The problem is a lot of our boxing coaches are hollow. Their validity comes from the stupid pad routines they do. Yeah. Take the pads away, take the punch shield away, and you will find out in 40 minutes if someone can train or not. And all you boxers listening to this, don't get seduced by what you see and what you hear in public. Go and sit in someone's gym, watch what they do, then look at the results it gets. And not necessarily wins or losses. I'm less worried about wins or losses. I'm, I always want to see December 2022 versus December 2023. What do I have? Do I have a step change in performance, mindset, technique or are you just a fit a stronger version of the the rubbish i saw a year ago and a lot of these trainers that claim to be real amateur coaches are clowns they're clowns because they're not obsessed with the craft and then they go and drift into the personal training world this is what i don't understand they complain about personal trainers encroaching into the boxing world. Then I'm like, but you're doing PT work. You're taking food off their table. Oh, well, yeah, but I'm proper. Not a PTing, you know? That's a whole different business model. And that's really the moment. Like, like I told you, you get some of these tracksuit wallies, you know, these cab drivers. And they moan about everything. Ah, it's not like it was in 1907 when, you know... Only 15 people knew what was going on and we'd all sit in the same cafe and have breakfast together and just take over the boxing world. And you're like, shut up. Just shut up. If you're a good boxing coach, your guys will win everything. If you're a bad boxing coach, you're going to get shown up by a guy that works in Anytime Fitness. That's just how the ball bounces. I get tired of hearing people in boxing complaining about outsiders. 
yeah? YouTubers, we made boxing too easy. We made boxing too accessible because everyone was chasing that pound note. When it started off, everyone was saying, ah, oh, I'd never work with one of these YouTubers. Then they saw the money involved and they started whoring themselves out. I said from the beginning, I like what this YouTube movement is. I like what it represented because I said it's going to expose the nonsense in boxing. And it did. Those kids like KSI, Jake and Logan Paul, exposed what happens in boxing. They showed that actually you can pay fighters fairly and still be profitable. Well, we were always told, ah, oh, it's hard to make a bob, mate. It's hard to make a few shillings. No, it's not. So that's what, 2024, let's have coaching coaches just shut the hell up. Yeah, just shut up. If you've got good fighters, they'll go through. Yeah? It, if I give a good coach 10 fighters and I give the guy from Anytime Fitness 10 fighters, it shouldn't even be close. The fact that it is close is why these guys are complaining. Yeah? Because these guys are just showing. And I showed this 10 years ago, man. Boxing coaching ain't that hard. It ain't that hard. Yeah? Now, what guys like Joe Gallagher do as professionals, oh, that's hard. That's hard. Because now you can't get away from the detail. Now you can't get away from the work ethic. You're being paid. You're accountable for performance. You're accountable for outcomes. You're not doing that if you're from Anytime Fitness. You're not doing that if you're a PT who, who decided to take this up late in life. You're not doing that. On God, you're not doing that. Because it's hard. That's what I'd say. So those guys need to stop. Another thing that irritates me, but another thing that came out of that conversation, and I didn't know this, there are women boxers who are cooking on hot sauce, who are avoiding fights with other women boxers because they know they're cooking on hot sauce. I said, how do they know? And he just said, they understand it takes one to know one. So these women are now looking at each other's physiques going, if I had to do X to get like that, I know they're doing X to get like that. We ain't fighting. I'm going to find the, the softer targets. And if UCAT don't get a grip on what's happening in women's boxing, that's going to be a problem. There are women boxing now who have irregular periods. Some who haven't had a period for two years. Um, some with complete endocrine system failure because they're listening to the wrong people. Just saying. So people say, you know, the Irish mob jumped on my case by Katie Taylor. We can talk about whether uh, you, these are baseless comments. They're not baseless comments. Sometimes when I tell you something, I just say it's alleged or I withhold the name because it's not worth the aggro. But when I tell you something is the case when it comes to doping, it is because chances are I know the person supplying. So here's what I am saying. If UCAT don't get a grip on the stuff women are taking, whether it's the five milligrams of Anivar between fights to help kind of preserve muscle mass, whether it's some of these growth hormone um, agonists or precursors that they're taking, whether it's just the inhibition of estrogen, to shift body fat so they can make weight. These are all things women are taking. Some women are taking beta agonists like clenbuterol to help them cut weight. 
This is all happening in boxing. And people say, I'm the problem. Okay. What's going to happen when some of these women get to 40? What's going to happen when some of these women go, yeah, I won't mind having a family now. And all of a sudden they're wondering why they're miscarrying every time. And that does happen, by the way. Maybe not in boxing, but in other sports. There are women who were taking PDs and they had to admit taking these things because doctors were like, how are you still miscarrying? And the answer was, look, for about eight years of my life, I was taking steroids. Were you taking orals or injectables? I took both. Oh. Oh, that's bad. And that's why, that's why I say what I say. I'm not particularly bothered about catching people taking stuff. Like, I don't care. But I care about boxing being a fair sport. And I care about these women leaving the sport healthy. Just like I do the men. And if, if we don't talk about these things, nothing will ever get done. Nothing will ever get investigated. But let's just wrap up by saying congratulations to Steve Goodwin on a, a good small hall show on Saturday night, by all accounts. Now I couldn't make it because I was tied up. But just, I'll, I always speak from a position of bias. When you've got Linus Adofia, Yusuf Kamari, and Jerome Campbell on a small hall card, that's a pretty solid card. I remember saying... I thought at one point Carl Greaves was putting out some of the strongest cards in the small hall scene, and I stand by that. This one runs it closely. That's at that's a comparable level. I'm happy for Jerome Campbell. I, I see him sporadically, you know, every so often. I don't think we live that far from each other, though he might have moved. But he's a lovely guy. Really, really good guy. I've known him since he boxed for Northolt in the Novices. That's nearly 10 years ago now. And I've seen him go from that to Finchley to Islington to Turning Pro. And he's always been a class act. One of those people I wish boxing had got behind. Because you wouldn't mind. You know, you know the sort of people you can become a fan of. And he's one of them. I feel the same way about Yusuf Kamari. Um, good performance by Yusuf. I'm always going to nag Yusuf. Because when you're an inside fighter, I don't think you can just throw two punches. I think it's got to be three. And he still falls into that trap of just throwing two. And I think... The evolution of Yusuf Kamari will be that ability to throw three and four punch combinations once you get yourself inside. Otherwise, what's the point of being inside? Once you're in, maximize your opportunity and then work your way back in afterwards. But I'm happy for him. I'm happy for Linus. Um, be interesting to see what Linus does next. I'm sure they're going to be angling for that British. And I don't believe Nathan Heaney's miles ahead of Linus. But... You still will get to that position. So congratulations to Steve because I'm sure there were times when Steve was done with boxing. Uh, you know, I remember on Ring Talk he was talking about the costs were going up, you know, the, the rules around the COVID bouts, it was making it uneconomic and you knew he was deflated. But you look at his stable now and it's almost like back to the future. He's got all the guys he had before but they're older, wiser, more mature and more receptive to the things he's saying, so they're better to work with. I'm sure he's just a happier man overall. So congratulations to him. I think, you know, small hall scene, nice feeder for platforms like Sky and BT. Um, I actually wish those guys would stay away from places like York Hall and allow small hall promoters to build there. And then the promoter's challenge should be, how do we fill the copper box? How do we fill the copper box in the Wembley Arena and then gravitate that towards the O2 and stadium fights? All right, let me tap out because I only wanted this to be like a part two of episode 198 because I felt 
you know, when you record something before a major card, you kind of feel like, I don't want to do a whole episode, but I've ended up doing what's pretty much a whole episode, but this is like a part two. And also, I don't want to get to the 200 yet, so I'm just, I'm playing with semantics as well. But listen, have a great week, people. You know, we're getting into that kind of silly season, fun season. So enjoy your December. I know it's freezing out there, but enjoy your December. Call a message your mates. Start making plans. Call your relatives. Call your friends. Just do stuff that you've been putting off. Yeah? Just message people. Say, hey. Or, here. There'll be someone on your phone that you've fallen out with. And you probably can't even remember how, where, why. Just message them. Just message them. You know, message him. Just diffuse all the tension. That's what I'd say. You know, that might be my last note on this episode. If there are people you've got problems with on your phone, just message him. Rebuild. Life's too short. And on that note, take care, guys. Take care.